Hello, Heal community. For the first time in nearly a year, I'm opening my practice back up to the general public. I'm actively looking for 10 new qualified clients committed to reversing their illness or health concerns and powerfully taking on their journey to heal. If you're interested in finding out more, go to my website and schedule a free 25-minute phone call. We will discuss what you're dealing with and be sure we are the best fit for each other. Remember, I specifically have expertise in autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, mold illnesses, hormones, and insomnia, but can treat much more. Looking forward to connecting with you. Welcome to HEAL. On today's episode, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein, developmental optometrist, expands our view about the interconnection between our physical vision and how to envision success and performance in our lives. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Welcome to HEAL. Today we've got Dr. Lynn Hellerstein, which this is, I'm so excited about the unique nature of this conversation. Because Lynn, your background is optometry and you've worked in developmental optometry and vision therapy, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And your newest book is about expanding your vision. And it's it's the combination of, I think you're going to correct me, the physicality and the neurology of our vision. But then there's this whole world of envisioning our lives and making a difference in performance and making a difference in our health. And you've worked a lot with kiddos in particular and adults, but with people that have different challenges around learning and performance, correct? That's right. That's how I started. Yeah. Awesome. So how did you, how, where did this conversation come from to actually go from what I would imagine is just like the straight doctoring into this more expansive conversation about envisioning our lives and performance and optimizing like our livelihood. Well, most of my expertise comes from my patients and my, my own personal experience, of course. And for more than 40 years, I've treated, I started really in pediatrics. That was really my love working with kids with learning problems, eye hand coordination, reading difficulties, sports problems, all of this kind of stuff. And, and I loved it because we'd, we'd evaluate these kiddos and find there were visual breakdowns, eye hand, you know, tracking, they needed glasses, just lots of different things. And I started in vision therapy really because of my own reading problems. I loved to read. I was a good reader. I was a great student. But after about, you know, 10, 15 minutes of reading, the print would get a little blurry, my uh, eyelids would get heavy, and I was sound asleep. And it didn't make any difference what time of day it was. I was a sleeper. And so I learned to learn differently. You know, luckily, I could listen well, take notes, be organized. So I got through, year, through almost eight years of college trying to avoid reading. And, you know, I read when I had to, and I could read, but it was torture for me. And so that's what drove me into really looking beyond just glasses and eye health and disease in the optometry field. And I discovered a very small specialty called vision therapy. And so that's how I started my career. And it, we were very successful with a lot of kids and their reading got better, school got better. But many of these patients still had blocks like, I'll give you an example, little gal that you know, hated to read, she couldn't read, standing up in front of a classroom to read was like torture for her. You know, she had stomach aches, so she wouldn't have to go to school and read out loud. And so we'd work with her and work on the tracking and the basics of what was blocking her from reading well, and often it would improve. But in her own mind and body, she was still convinced that she wasn't a reader. I hate to read. I can't read. And so that's when I started looking at, hmm, how do we shift that? And it was through my own personal experience of some health issues, and we can talk about that more, and, and even landmark of, you know, seeing what's inside. And really what happened was I just started doing this world of vision therapy inside, wow. really internally. What do we see? Does it match up with what we're doing and saying? And so that's how I started shifting more and more of vision, not only externally, but internally as well. And so when I started learning about visualization for myself and healing, it was so familiar because it's the work that I've been doing 
what I call externally with my patients for years. That's so awesome. And it, it parallels something that, you know, hasn't been a huge part of my story a lot because of how my parents managed it and how my mom was with me, but I had, and I don't actually know where on the spectrum of things, but somewhere between mild to moderate dyslexia growing up and was super hyper capable in math sciences. And then anything regarding language arts, reading word comprehension, like that was really challenging for me. And I know that's such a huge thing for so many people is that fear of reading out loud, having to read in public and how much there's both our mental, who we are for ourselves, along with whatever we might physically be dealing with or how our brain is firing or how our eyes are seeing things. And I mean, it was a long battle for me through school, but my mom actually had a background in education. And so she, I mean, not to mention just who she is and how compassionate she is. And so she just tons of patients, tons of long nights helping me work through it. And there wasn't a conversation of a disability for me. Like I never experienced it that way at all. I actually have to remind myself that that's still a little bit. I've got a lot of tips and tricks of how I worked my way through. I do a lot of word recognition more than I actually, I, I think when I read, I actually see the patterns of the letters more than I like read the words. There's a lot of memorization of the way things are supposed to look. And that's how I've been able to read faster. But when I would actually go through and have to read the way we typically put the words together and sound them out, like it would go really slow and it's hard. And people still, if they spell a word out loud to me, back to me, I can't, I got to have them slow way down in order to track the letters if you give me a 10 digit number, phone number, I can probably recite it right back to you immediately. It's like how my brain deals with the two different things. I, you probably know a lot more about that than I do. Well, thanks for sharing that, Sarah, because really the nature of the work is people learn differently and they have different strengths. Mm-hmm. And it's the forced expectations, especially like through school, that if you can't do it this way, then it produces all this anxiety and emotional distress. What's the matter with me? And shutdown. And so your sharing of learning differently, I've been fascinated. You know, I have a subgroup of patients. It's probably about 25% of my patient population has been identified as being gifted because they come from the psychologist. They're referred from several psychologists. Gifted, and they call these kiddos often two e twice exceptional. So they're gifted with some kind of a learning issue. And maybe the learning issue isn't bad enough to even be called dyslexia, although we could spend this whole conversation on stealth dyslexia. I mean, we won't even agree on what dyslexia is. And there's some neurologists that have a wonderful book that discuss stealth undercover, meaning you show signs and patterns, but you're not low enough to be identified as dyslexic. But Many of these patients that I've seen for years show the profile you just mentioned that they're often brilliant in math, science, some are real artistic, unbelievable athletes and dancers, yet give give these people instructions on how to do things. It's like, I'm not doing that or I can't do that. And so it affects their emotions a lot. And so this is where my, my focus and work was concentrated great. You know, we can really help them with some of the deficit skills, but often they were minor. It's not like they had this major tracking problem or major double vision, maybe minor. But as I tell many of my patients, there's two parts to every issue. One is, do you have the skill? And the second part is your perception of you having the skill. And often you feel like, oh, I can't do that. And and kids always talk about, I feel stupid. And these are often brilliant, you know measurably brilliant kiddos that don't have the confidence to go out there and either it comes quick and easy and it's perfect or forget it. I don't know how to do it. So those were the kinds of patients that really started helping me look beyond just the physicality of what's going on visually. And again, it always goes back to my, my own personal you know, health issues and other problems as to where my answers came from. It, always seems to come from inside, not outside. Yeah. And I have that similar experience between my patients and what they teach me and how they guide me. And sometimes they ask me questions. I'm like, 
I don't know. Let me go investigate that. And, and it keeps putting me on that edge of what's next and where else can we go? And, you know, in my work where I'm working with people with a lot of predominantly chronic illnesses, a lot of autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, but also like gastrointestinal or hormone imbalances. It's, it's interesting because similar conversations will come up though of in the beginning, we're just dealing with getting them out of the intensity of what they're going through. And so it's, I call it half palliative care, half curative care, where some of the things we're doing is just simply to help them feel better. That's not going to be detrimental. And then we're working on the deep roots at the same time, but there comes a point one to two years into their healing journey where most of the like day-to-day suffering is a lot better. And there's this threshold that has to be crossed about letting go of my conversation or viewpoint of who I am as a person who's sick, who has a disease, who, you know, like there's this transformation point of at what point do you say you no longer have this, or it's no longer impacting you, or I'm a person who has this genetic trait, or I have this diagnosis, but that diagnosis doesn't have to, well, what does it mean about us is the question. You know, what are we creating that that, it, that means about our capacities or what we can do? And I can see real parallel in that conversation. Well, it certainly brings me back to where I really started shifting my personal focus and interest in learning was in 2002, which happened to be my own personal medical crisis of, I was diagnosed with a tumor in my colon. And I was 50 years old, I remember, because it was my 50-year-old, let's check everything out in your body, and it was a shock. And, and it was because of some other reasons, it, an accident that we found it. And went through surgery and became allergic to all foods. And I'm the kind of patient that you treat all the time. That's what started me on my journey of uh, functional medicine. That's where I I really found my healing sense, but that also that's what threw me into a state of uh, this emotional distress that when I was so sick, no longer were my labels of being a doctor and a writer and a mother and all of this stuff meant nothing anymore. And it sent me on the journey of who am I and what is my purpose of life? And it was a very dark time for me and where I found help you know, again, this is where the universe just works in funny ways. I remember sitting at the kitchen table, not being able to eat. I mean, food was now my enemy. I couldn't digest food and became the mantra of my life. I couldn't digest life. That's how mm. it felt. And my whole language was wrapped around, you know, food related, digestive related language. You know, I can't eat this you know, stuff like this. And what a bunch of, you know, so my whole world I saw through my gut. And I spent a lot of time learning that I'm not my gut, that I have a gut who needs healing, but I am not my gut. And that took a lot of talk about letting go, you know, because I was so wrapped up into it. And back to the story, I was sitting at the table and I remember seeing this little ad in the Denver Post when we used to be able to read newspapers on it, you know, watching, just sitting at the table. And it was an ad needed subject for IBS study, irritable bowel study which I had been diagnosed just before I had been diagnosed with a tumor. And I thought this is very weird because most of these studies involve new medications like for, for menopause or for Alzheimer's or something like that. There really weren't medications for IBS. So I called the number, you know, it says strictly confidential. It's, you know, call us if you want to be part of the study, not knowing what it was about. The lady calls back. She goes, I know you. You've treated a whole bunch of our patients in Winter Park. And I went to school with your your husband and all this. And so confidentiality (laughs) was right out the window. She was doing a study on on utilizing meditation for chronic health issues. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I never could meditate because I was always active. I was always moving. And so it was listening to these CDs twice a week and keeping a journal of our functional symptoms. Well, it was so powerful for me. And she was doing this study for a PhD thesis. That's, that's why she was doing it. 
So when I was done, I thought, this is really great. I'd like to get a lot more of these CDs. This is back in the time of CDs now. Right, so, right. So it dates me a little bit. That's all right. I, I even had tapes at one point in my life. I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I still have tapes. So anyways, I said, how can I get more CDs from whoever this you know recording's from? So she gave me the name of the person who could be anywhere in the world. And I look her up and sure enough, it's a patient at our office. My daughter's teaching her daughter dance lessons, Dr. Deb Sandella, and lives, you know, not very close to me. And so I started seeing her and pretty soon she was creating her own program of this meditation called RIM, Releasing Inner Memories. She does a lot of the uh, meditations for Jack Canfield and yeah. you know, a lot of people out there. And so she said, why don't you join my class? I said, well, this is great stuff. This is helpful. She said, just join the class. You'll learn a lot more. You'll get a lot more experience. And so I did in each class. So I was in her first class. She kept coming up with new classes. And now I'm certified in RIM, which is a very powerful process. But it was so, this is when it was so familiar to me because it was using the languaging of what I use in vision therapy, but within you know, if you're stressed and really stressed, I don't say, what are you stressed about? It's relax. Where in your body does it show up? What does yeah. it look like? What, you know, so that's what really helped me then take this type of work at, at, at a lighter level into my office, working with my patients and my staff. And so it was my own personal health issues that really helped. That's the silver lining. In the midst of health crisis, you know, most people get so wrapped up into, understandably, the health crisis and the physicality of it. But that was a civil, silver lining that came out for me that then became, through that time is when I decided to write my first book and just explore further and just many more stories down the road about that. Yeah, it's so awesome. And Lynn, I, I've said this a lot on the podcast and I'm, I always am like, trying not to make every episode personal, like, but I literally feel like you got sent to me for a reason. And it's not an accident. We're having this conversation today. Yeah. And like, I mean, I, I know it's unavoidable, unavoidable is, is I embarked on an inquiry at the beginning of this podcast, which is really like, really, what does it mean to heal? What does that actually take to heal? What, what is healing? How do we heal? What are the, and I, my, my thesis, my hypothesis is that there actually is a blueprint to it. There are reproducible, predictable things that will help us get to where we want to be whole and complete and healed physically, mentally, and emotionally, spiritually. But the, the way conventional medicine has been presented to us over the last, depends on where you want to draw the line, we'll call it a hundred years. There's, there's, we've only been looking at it through one doorway or one window. And that's part of why we haven't been getting the results that people would expect. And it's not that that aspect, there's anything wrong with it. It's just incomplete. It doesn't bring all these other components together. And you're so speaking to that. And, and it's also really great to hear you as a physician coming to a health crisis in 2002 and where you are now, because I'm in the midst of that for myself, which I've shared a lot about on the podcast that, you know, last summer I had a pretty massive well-being crash we looked at it through the lens of chronic fatigue syndrome, and now I'm in phase two, year two of it, looking at how much of this is still chronic fatigue, how much of is it physical, and what else is going on. And I'm starting to actually open up into this realization of that it's where I am now is more navigating preventing professional burnout and how to take care of myself in a new level of balance. And I literally just went on my first like real vacation since the beginning of the pandemic. I have been taking time off. I have had whole days, weekends, sometimes even three or four days in a row with very little things going on. And I just didn't realize until this vacation, the extent to which I had not actually relaxed since the COVID-19 pandemic began for me, which was the first week of March when I really became acutely aware of what was happening in 2020. So it's been about 18 months. I'm also, I'm a chronic illness doctor. I don't deal with emergencies. And suddenly I had 
emergency situations in many of my clients or concern for emergency and putting myself up on edge. And I would be on vacation, but I would have one client who still was in the midst of COVID. So I would stay in touch with them. That kind of kept the door open. So I'd answer other people's questions, other people's emails and the creep had gotten in and I didn't even know it. And it's been having this whole impact on my body. And now I'm like, I've, I've done a lot to alter the physical. I'm sleeping great. My day-to-day is a lot better. And now I, it's like, and I even come from my, my mother's Buddhist for 45 years. I mean, meditation is not a new concept to me. I was doing yoga before I was playing soccer as a little kid. And now it's like another level though of owning, for me, this is an empowering word, the discipline of a spiritual practice and how to take care of myself in that space of visualization. And like, even as you say visualization, I'm like, there's been, there's been a blank space in front of me. Like, I don't have a, what I want to create there, you know, and it's, it's in the midst of this like dark period for myself is not even being able to see something else, but like taking it one step at a time. So it's just very poignant and timely that we're having this conversation for lots of reasons. And I think it's what a lot of people are dealing with is they, they get answers around, I mean, maybe they even have themselves or their child evaluated around challenges with learning or looking into the physical of glasses and what else do they need in order to alter their vision and how their neurology is operating. And it like only takes them so far. And there's gotta be a ton of frustration and disappointment there. Very well said. And my heart goes out to you, Sarah, because it is a journey. And as much as you have the skills in helping so many other people in your journey, you know, it's different when it's your own journey. And so I, I remember when people would always say, how are you doing? How are you feeling compared to what, you know, compared to yesterday, compared uh-huh. to how I want to be. And so I understand that. And that's really the journey to be on and just to, to be, you know, I found to be present to. But, but what you'd said, it's so interesting because how do you measure success, for example, in, in vision therapy? And we'll have some kiddos or, you know, I remember an adult that we had who had a history of crossed eyes. By the time we saw her, she was an adult. She must have had, I don't know, six, eight, 10 surgeries. And one eye didn't even move anymore. So one eye is fixed, the other eye is moving. She's a beautiful girl, except people would always, you know, she was always self-conscious about her eyes. Whether or not people even said anything anymore, I don't know. But she lived from, I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful, I can't do anything kind of thing. Physically, we could not change her eyes. I mean, we, you know, we now have so much scar tissue and the eyes fixed and whatever. But she came because she wanted to get certification and becoming a um, trainer, a you know, physical trainer. And she was convinced she couldn't take the test. She couldn't do it. She couldn't read it well enough. And so we worked with her because her, her one eye that moved did not move well. Remember, two parts to the issue. She didn't have very good skill from a visual standpoint for reading, nor did she believe that she could ever do it. And we worked on both. And this uh, patient, not only she flew through the certification, started her job, has written us the biggest acknowledgments of how helpful vision therapy is. And if you measured from the physical standpoint, it's not at all helpful from our measurements yeah but her learning how to deal she wasn't at the mercy of her vision she was in charge of what she had in her vision and that power totally changed her life and so you know we've had patients <clears throat> from that perspective do great and then the opposite we've had patients that oh my gosh constant double vision can't drive can't play sports we really help them fuse and learn how to coordinate their eyes together and at the end they go have I gotten any better you know so healing is whole and complete inside and outside and yeah and sometimes we always what we call complete isn't always at the physical level we would hope or want but that doesn't mean healing can't happen and you know I'm sure that's your forte what you're talking oh yeah I mean and I've seen it in both sides and you mentioned landmark and I've, I've talked about that program a lot on, you know, I kind of can't help it to talk about it because it's been such a big part of my life, but any sort of transformational education or a place where we can go and take a look at our strongly held beliefs, often many of which are hidden from our view, like 
I really, if you had asked me three weeks ago, are you resting? Are you taking time off? I would have made a list of all the reasons. Yeah, totally. I absolutely have been, but I hadn't totally unplugged. And there was, I actually would have to look to really see what the conversation is, like what the limited belief was, but there was something like a cross between being justified that I thought I had been doing it. I had, you know, I even said it to my dad in exasperation at one point. I'm like, I've been resting for a year. I can't rest anymore. If I, I mean, if one more person tells me I just need to be, you know, more kind to myself and take time off and am I resting? I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting so bored. I can't keep, <laughs> but then he just flat out looked at me and goes, you haven't been resting for a year. And I was like, huh. You know, it, it like challenged something that was this, the way I saw it from the inside and then how he saw it, you know, and inside of my, I've been resting for a year. I had an entire relationship, which I completed. I moved across the country. I shifted things in my business. I launched a podcast. I've been, you know, my version of resting might need a little bit of an update, but there was a lot of Netflix I had watched. And so I was like, do you know how many television shows I've been watching? And I did alter my schedule and I, you know, allowed myself, I haven't woken up to an alarm in a year. I have it so that my body gets the full amount of rest it needs every night. It's able to rest completely. And that's made a big difference, but there was something I wasn't letting go of that was way more that internal if it, and, and where I got to was a lot of fear. Like if I really let go and I couldn't really tell you of what, cause it's not like if I don't answer an email to my clients or if I don't, you know, I don't know what, but if I really let go, it was this, this, it's all going to fall apart. I'll never get it back. Like, I mean, it's still a bit there for me because I can feel the emotion bubbling up of like, there's this fear that if I really release and trust there's definitely someone also said to me recently, do you trust that the universe has your back or that like the universe is going to take care of you and provide? And I'm seeing a big, like, no, I'm not operating that way. That's something I would say, like, of course the universe has my back. And I know that, you know, there's divine presence that's there to take care of me. Mm -mm, that's not actually, there's something in that particular conversation for me that is what's coming up right now about what there is to be healed, inquired into, examined. And, you know, this is after me going through 20 years of my own journey. And so it might not look like that for somebody right off the get that they go straight to, am I connected to God? <laughs> you know, but okay. actually when I do work with clients long-term, just what you said about having to look at, you know, who am I and what is my purpose? I find all of my clients as they go through their healing journey, there's a point where that becomes the most important question, not what's my diet, how many hours am I sleeping? Am I exercising? Am I drinking enough water? I mean, we got to start with that and take care of this physicality, but there becomes a point in their healing journey, which is like, what am I fighting for? Why do I want to be healthy? And I ask them that, like, why health? what do you want from this? And I love the way you created that for some people in your practice, the physicalness may not change that much. They're dealing with circumstances they're dealing with, but they're able to alter their beliefs about themselves, their beliefs about the world and what's possible and, and have that now just become something to be responsible for. Like, yeah, this is the way my vision operates, but I'm actually capable of doing these other things in my life that matter to me. And then how it can go the other way of people who you may really move the needle physically, but their internal experience is like, you know, nothing's changed or I'm still not going to be able to be, you know, and working, working the problem from both sides, which has definitely been a corner in my experience. And I see a lot of those same, I call them like poetry in the body, like metaphors. When somebody's dealing with an inflammatory condition, they often have either overreactive or majorly suppressed inflammatory emotions. And they may look calm as a cucumber and like a rock on the outside, but that that's getting all internalized and it's going into organ systems in their body and in Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine and many of the more ancient medicines, you'll see conversations about this all the time and how we internalize those emotional states and, and how there's actually research that's shown how shame influences the body and how anger influences the body and how the immune system gets suppressed 
when we're disempowered and the immune system, literally we can measure it biochemically, the immune system functions better when we're empowered and we're happy. Yeah, you're bringing up so many thoughts of experience <laughs> that I've yeah. been through. Um, you know, one of the big lessons I learned through my health crisis, and it came to me in a very weird way. I was actually driving to one of the sessions where we we're going to listen to the meditations. And I remember sitting on the top of uh, a street in Denver where you can see the mountains. It's one of my favorite places to be. And I'm just sitting there just thinking about myself, the meditations, my health. And I hear this voice. And it's like, the radio is not on. Like, where is this voice? Because I'm, I'm asking this question. I don't understand why, why I'm going through this. I'm young. What's going on? And I hear this voice. You're not listening to your gut. And I'm turning around like, who said that? And there was nobody there. And it was like, it, it felt like, and I'm not wanting to make this at all a religious or anything, but it felt like a voice of God saying, you are not listening to your gut. And I've heard the voice in a couple other times, but what it did was wake me up as to, I wasn't paying attention to my body and all the signs of stress. I'm good. I can do it all. The anxiety, I'll just push it down further. And that's what, you know, my health crisis did was wake me up to start listening, being aware. And when I start, you know, ups and downs in my life, it usually goes back to, you know, listen to your gut. Can I trust my gut? So my languaging is a little different than yours, but can I trust my gut? And, you know, Because of these lessons, I've made some major shifts in my life over the last last years, you know, besides, you know, writing my four books, and I would tell you I hate to write, but there was something bigger than that, which got me through my books. You know, I ended up getting divorced after 40 years, um, talking about selling my part of my practice, and it's through deep work, whether it's the rim or landmark, and it's been a combination of of letting go. I mean, like you talked about, and and moving into the unknown, which Brene Brown and, you know, landmark partnership. And, you know, people ask me if I liked one of our courses partnership, I will tell you, I, that was the worst course for me ever. Because it was about moving into the unknown and being with what's there. And that was such a challenge. And so that's been the continuation of my journey. And you mentioned about painting your canvas. And it's so interesting, because our language is so similar. Mm. Not a surprise, because we're, you know, on journeys, parallel journeys. Yeah. And I remember when I spoke several years ago at the Conference of Global Transformation in front of 900 people, you know, and I, this topic minified to 15 minutes, basically. And I got to a point towards the end that I'm almost done. And I'm sorry. And I was talking about what's next. And I showed a slide of this beautiful woman. She's, you know, in these long, beautiful, flowing clothes in the ocean, looking out what's next in my life. And at that moment, I had kind of this visualization of do you know how I don't know if you're old enough to remember the old cartoons where they'd stop the cartoon and you'd have the two characters talking to each other you know where the world stopped and the mind is going well what about this what about this what about that's what happened well this whole this whole canvas shows up in my vision don't even see the 900 people with paintbrushes galore and it's like wow all I need to do is pick up the paintbrush and create Mm. and I'm ready and I remember seeing myself in my mind to pick up the paintbrush and start creating my what's next and then I happen to look down and I see my time's up my 15 minutes is up so I go oh I better finish this and I'll get back to the canvas so uh, I finish my my talk and get off the stage wondering how long was I in pause how long did I stop in this conversation and I had to wait like six, eight weeks till I could see a recording of it. Yeah. You don't even see me take a breath. Oh my gosh. 
And this was, so here I am in front of 900 people with one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life, nobody knowing. And here I am now, what, three, four years later, not picking up the paintbrush yet. And now dealing with just why haven't I picked up the paintbrush? It's that, e that easy. And that's the point of the journey that I'm on right now. Mm. It's there to create. I have all the supplies. What's the limiting belief or fear yeah. or whatever it is to move forward? And the answer comes when I've consulted a number of people is see it, say it, do it, which happens to be the name of my book. <laughs> why yeah. you know, do my own work? And yeah. so I, I've done so much work and it's time to get back and recreate and move through my work. Yeah, we are, I mean, you know, different ages, maybe different stages in our career, but the, it's, it, there is no accidents in the universe that we're doing this right now. Cause like, you know, that experience I've studied flow state, which is a certain neurologic condition we can actually put ourselves into where there'll often be grand insights. There's a sense of timelessness that can happen in flow state. And then on the outside looking in, like it was, it was a blip, like nobody outside of you experienced it, but we can, and, and flow state is more common to drop into in extreme circumstances, actually. So probably even the, who knows, right. But the context of being on stage, delivering a keynote in front of 900 people you know, a lot of extreme sport athletes will utilize dropping into flow state, but they have to get all the way out to the edges of their abilities. And then they're more likely. And then in um, the Navy SEALs, they used flow state all the time and they didn't know they were using it. This actually was an interesting, I always mispronounce his, his name, but it's, there's Stephen. Oh gosh, I'll, we'll make sure it's in the show notes, but there's a book called the rise of Superman that these two guys have become the experts in flow state and they were just trying to figure out what this neurologic condition even was. And then some Navy SEALs read the book and went, oh my gosh, that's what we've been doing. And then they started working together and studying the Navy SEALs and they would use sleep deprivation and a lot of physical exertion would actually, they knew they'd get their guys to a certain place where there'd be this incredible, almost telepathic synchronicity that would happen between the men and women in their groups together. And these divine, maybe that's my word, maybe it's just super consciousness experiences of the brain would come through. So it's, I can, I can relate to that a lot. And, and how do we access those moments of inspiration? But then what I also love that you talked about is like sometimes, and I'll even do this to myself where I'm like, well, I should have this figured out. And now I should just be able to do X, Y, or Z all the time. Like I should just be reliable for that. Like, like, well, that time's over. I did my work and now I should just be able to create and create and create all the time. And it's just not like that. It's this continual, I have more tools to deal with my limited beliefs. I have way more support in my community around me to actually reflect things back to me. Like, do you know what you just said? Are you sure that's actually how you want your life to go? You know, like recognizing that what I'm saying is creating the world that I'm living into. I have community and I have tools and I have courses that I take that all help me with it. And yet here I am in this like blank space going, okay, I've got some well-being issues that I actually need to be responsible for. My body's a demand, literally, that I live differently than I have for the last 20 years of my adulthood, like just complete demand. And I have these commitments and desires around expanding my own career and where else can I make a difference and living a fulfilled life. And I've just been in this like, like now what? And that pick up the paintbrush and paint. Like I can, that's like, that's just started to come into my consciousness of like, okay, that really is now the next thing is, is like, it, and I was thinking about it this morning, not knowing what we were going to talk about of literally like, I'm feeling like I'm ready to actually really just look, what do I want to create now? Given this, what do I want to create now? And it's, mushy and gooey and not yet clear. And it's not yet got a sharp focus to it, but there's just this, like something is coming into view of, okay, great. Now what, now what do you want to create? 
That, <clears throat> that's very beautiful. And, you know, it gives whole new meaning to emptying meaningless yeah. <laughs> at the start. But, you know, that's where the power of visualization meditation steps in to get into some type of relaxed state, however that looks for each person. It could be walking, it could be laying down, it could be on a meditation cushion, but just to allow and allow and be aware is where the magic happens. And I see, and I do want to clarify, especially for your listeners in that when I talk about visualization, it's multi-sensory, meaning mm. It's not just the typical, you know, see an image in our mind kind of thing. It's see it, feel it, hear it, think it, you know, not think it, but, you know, all the senses. Embody it. it. Embody it. It's that whole sensory imagery that someday I'll, I think I'll come up with a new name because visualization in itself feels limiting to some people. Because yeah. a lot of people will go, I don't visualize, it's black. Now what do you do? And we have strategies to do that. And you can see them creating. And some people, you know, are very tactile and, and feeling in their imagery. And some people are very through noise and, and listening and hearing sounds. And some, I don't run into too many people that, you know, smell or taste, but there are, you know, great yeah. chefs. Mm, just, and if you listen to the language of people, you can tell how they're processing. Like, oh, I see what you mean. I hear you. I get you. You know, it's the I same feel concept. that. I feel that. Yeah. Right. So you could take sentences, and if you just listen to the words, they'll tell you what sensory system they predominantly probably process with. And often in schools and in personal relationships, the conversations like one says, I tell you I love you all the time. You never show me. Well, it's the same thing. It's not this, it is really the same concept, but right. it doesn't hit the sensory system of where you're going to feel, acknowledge, be aware of whatever it is. And so, you know, that's where the, the landmark languaging has been so interesting to see where and how it connects with um, visualization and, and, yeah. and my philosophies. Yeah. I love that you expanded that, that it's not just because I think I do get a little hung up on that. It, like, well, I can't see anything, so I'm doing it wrong or I'm broken. <laughs> yeah. You know, but actually there has been something else that's been coming forward that's stronger feeling. And I actually think that that's showing me something because I, I have been so cerebral and part of this, like my body's demanding literally that I live differently has been a lot about, I've done so much heady work from, you know, I hung out in my, my mom was an administrator to the elementary school that my sister and I participated in, which was in like kind of the Waldorf genre of um, philosophy. And I would go sit in with the pre-K and kindergartners at two and a half years old when my mom was there and I would literally like participate. And so I've been literally sitting in classes from age two and a half to 29 years old when I graduated from medical school. And then you know, went into my work in coaching and that has a lot of mental capacity and mental efforting in addition to being a doctor and starting my practice. And so there's been a lot happening, you know, from the neck up in my life. And that's been one of my messages I've gotten throughout this last year has been about, and I'm, and I've not surrendered to this totally. I actually have the information and I have, and there's more to take action on around this next era of my life doing something I've never done before to actually surrender to a physical practice like dance or yoga or martial arts. You know, I've been a skier and I'm active and I like sport, but actually when I look at the sports, I like, there's a cognitive mental challenge to them, downhill skiing and climbing and whitewater rafting. And, and it was never really about, oh, I'm so excited what my physical body can do. It was this, like, there was a mental component to it. And so one of the things I can see in this next step, and I see that same thing about what you're saying about, it can be visualization, it can be coming from your tactile, from your feelings, from even taste and smell, you know, all these different areas is also in healing. I've noticed that for myself and my patients, often the area of our livelihood we've neglected the most, or we shy away from may be where the keys to the kingdom of healing could be. And to recognize 
you know, that, that expanding ourselves into those areas. And then I see the exact same thing with how I receive love, which is so interesting. Cause you know, if you heard the book, the love languages, mm-hmm. you know, and they will talk about some people that acts of service or words of affirmation gifts all provide that real deep sense of being loved. And I can see like, probably we can look at whether that person is more coming from, you know, I see what you're saying, or I hear you, or I feel you, those different aspects connected, the more transformation I've done and the more healing work I've done, actually, the more access I have to receiving love on all levels. It was an unexpected consequence, but as I've done more and more work, I used to be acts of service all the way. I was like, don't tell me you love me. Show me that you love me. I want to see the physicalness of it. And gifts were like, I had a whole, but it was all coming from incompletions in my past. I personally had an experience that some people in my life would try and win me over by buying me get gifts instead of actually like being there with me physically. And there is an experience I think a lot of humans have, which is talk is cheap. So yeah, you can say whatever you want, but as I healed those things, and as I started to get complete with my past and do the internal work. Now you can tell me you love me. You can buy me things. You can give me words of affirmation. You can do acts of service. Like I have this expansion of how to receive love that I never expected as a consequence of doing that work that actually is like created more joy and more fulfillment. And now I'm looking at that from a physical health standpoint. Like I've done so much around biochemistry, nutrition, the mental, emotional side of things, but there's, there's more to do in the emotional. And then there's something coming up for me about the physical to really learn my body in, and come into partnership with my body. What does my body want versus what my mind wants? What a, a beautiful awakening. I mean, that's really great. And, you know, it made me realize as you were talking, because I really liked that book, The Love Languages. And, but it took me back to, you know, when I wrote my first book and it was called See It, say it, do it, visualize, declare, take action. And, you know, that was a combination of a lot of the the therapies and my personal work that came up. And what I found was for almost everybody I've run into, for them, if it's a new challenge at school, if it's a relationship, if it's a sport, it doesn't make any difference. For, the, for people to really be successful and happy through this process, they need to go through all three steps, not in that order necessarily. But if we miss a step, so I'll give an example for myself. When I was writing the book, the chapter, chapter five, say it, I had no stories for. You know, I have stories galore of people in vision and people in movement. I had no stories in the say it section. And, and I wondered why, you know, why don't I have stories? That's a section I often personally leave out myself, meaning somebody might say, hey, let's walk a marathon. I'll go, great, let's do it. And I start physically getting in shape and I see the end line and how we're going to do it. And in the background is, I can't do a marathon, 26.2 miles. Are you kidding me? When am I going to have my potty breaks? What am I going to, what about my feet, you know? So for me, the say it piece is what I either leave out or have a misalignment. If there's not alignment between what I'm seeing, what I'm speaking, and what I'm doing, that is a creator of stress and anxiety for me. And, you know, this is the second time I heard a voice, (laughs) you know, where I was trying to get in shape. My daughter actually asked me, my adult daughter, if I'd walk a marathon with her. And anytime one of my kids asks me to do something, it's my honor to be part of their lives, especially of adults. So I immediately said yes with baggage, you know, like, oh my God, what did I just say yes for? Which I realize is how I, you know, operate in the world. Sure, I'll do that. No problem. And then I go, why did I do that? And I'll do it. You can rely on me to do it with all the underneath conversation, you know, that's going on. So I said yes and started working out. It was a cold, you know, January in Colorado with lots of ice. So I'm not outside, you know, working out. And so I start 
on the treadmill, which I really, that's not my favorite thing to do. And if I got 20 minutes in, it was a big day. And I'm going, I am never going to be able to do this. Because I never walked more than probably eight miles at a time. I've just never done that. Walk a lot, but short times. And so there's, again, I'm walking. It's cold. I'm, you know, questioning, why did I say yes? I'm not a marathoner. I can't do this. What happened? And this voice comes again, second out of three times, okay? And this voice yells out, you are a marathoner. And again, it was one of those moments like, I'm, I'm on this, you know, sidewalk in the middle of the street. Nobody's there. And literally I checked, you know, radio, whatever. And then I stopped and realized I am a marathoner. Every day is a marathon for me. Getting the kids to school, you know, cooking dinner, seeing my patients, writing my reports, and it all starts over again. And it is a marathon. And I, you know, you can't say a declaration if you don't believe it. You can say it, but it doesn't do anything. Yeah. And for me to be able to say, I am a marathoner, doesn't have to be 26.2. It is true. I am a marathoner. After that, my writing changed, my workout changed. And it became the hallmark story in the, the, the fifth chapter of Say It. But what it did was wake me up is that that's the piece of speaking clearly that I leave out. You know, setting my boundaries, being clear, not like, sure, I'll do it. And that, you know, in relationship work, it, you know, I run into a lot of conflicts from that. And, and I see with my patients, they do it differently. Some are great. All they do is speak about their dreams and start, you know, doing things, but they never see it. Athletes, they never see themselves winning. They work out. They talk about being winner or people that see their dreams and they speak about it, but they never get to the do it piece, the action plan. And they spin in circles and dreams. And so the more I work with people, if we can help that them be aware of what piece maybe they're neglecting or not in alignment with and that once they address that, the flow can happen. And it's like, I mean, just you speaking about languages, I think we all have our preferences and we don't necessarily change our preferences, but we certainly can learn and, and acknowledge and be aware through our other systems of processing that it just really ramps up what we get to enjoy and what we get to experience and helps us, you know, be however we define success, successful and happy and loving a life. And so thanks for helping me bring back, you know, just your language of, of how that works for you, bringing back, that was the purpose of my book. And in that is stories of so many of my patients and family and friends of how this process has worked for them. And really it was my healing process through my health issues. That's when it was created through my recovery of my crisis from 2002. Yeah. Awesome. God, so good. I want to talk a little bit about the new book. Sure. Expand your vision, how to gain clarity, courage, and confidence. So what's distinct? What did you create there? Like, I mean, you know, I have a tiny glimpse having published a cookbook and it was two years of my life to create that book, you know, what it is. So I I'm over here like, yep, I did it once. I don't know. I should probably do. And you've written four books. So there's got to be something there of like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do another book. So tell us about this one. Yeah. That's not really how it happens for me. I'm going to sit down and write a book. Okay, great. When I'm done, it's more like I will never write another book. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it really happens. And then something in my life changes or happens or experience. And once it gets in my head and body, I have to get it out. Yep. So once I see it, Again, I don't say it, but I have to start doing it. And then I say it and it happens. And so what happened with this book was, it was again, the Conference of Global Transformation came up and they wanted me to talk about, you know, a 15 minute lecture is very hard. What are you going to say and have some impact in 15 minutes? And so it was my process to get my thoughts and experiences together for that conversation. And what came up were, so many of my patients that I've loved over years, and I remember my very first patient, well, not my very first, but in my first year, I was seeing, she was about a 74-year-old lady. She just came in for an eye exam, 
and she was an artist and she came in and she was just delightful. She was beautiful. Her paintings are gorgeous. I still have one of her paintings in my house. And she came in the next year she comes back and I said, you need a little change. And she had what's called a stigmatism, which is just a different way of being blurring. Most people wearing glasses or contacts have astigmatism. And I said, oh, Betty, you need a change. I can help you see even clearer. And she says, oh, honey, I think you're a great doctor and I love you, but I never wear your glasses. And I said, well, Betty, your heart works beautiful. Without them, you hardly see 2100. She goes, oh yeah, if I see too clearly, I can't be very creative. I need to see much more outside of this world. And that's what drives my art. So thanks. I want to make sure my eyes are healthy and I'll take your prescription. I'll see you next year. Well, that just floored oh me. God. You know, that go just all- got that hit something <clears throat> in me too. I'm like, oh. <clears throat> you know, it's like I go to school. I'm so great at that. What is she telling me? You know, it did not fit into my model. This is, you know, where it really started, my, my eye vision, physical, medical model. I had no place to put that experience. But I always remembered it. And that's what opened me up. And so it, there's books about all of these patients. And then it goes beyond patients. It goes be, you know, to friends and family experience. But another patient that I saw when he was a little boy, he was either seven or nine years old, and he was involved in a very serious motorbike accident. And he had a severe brain injury, you know, was in the hospital and rehab for years. They never thought he'd walk again, talk again, one of those injuries. The kid comes back, he's brilliant, straight A student. He had severe visual problems, double vision, and he lost oh, about a half to three quarters of his field of vision. So most of the lower part and one side of his vision was now gone and that wouldn't come back. It never stopped the kid. He became straight A student. He became a top baseball pitcher, which I was afraid of because he couldn't be a hitter and run because he didn't have a big enough field, but pitcher was always right on. And my story is he must've been so good. He never got a ball back hit at him because right. there was no way in the world he would he have been able seen to it. feel it. Right. He never could drive safely. He went to um, college, got accepted to the school of mines, which is a top engineering school. That's a big deal. Almost didn't pass because he couldn't do all the chemistry labs because trying to pour, you know, sulfuric acid in the beaker was unsafe for him because of the spatial problems. And he could tell somebody what to do and they wouldn't allow him an assistant just to physically do it. Well, it it became a very nasty thing. Finally, they allowed him. He passed with flying colors, got into med school, passed with flying colors, landed a very top dermatology residency. And this is with all these lost visual functions, right? But it was about he saw himself as a doctor no matter what. Yeah. Okay. First year of residency, I get a call from him. He, and I can hardly hear him. And he goes, Dr. H, I need your help. And I go, what, what's going on? Well, he was walking with his headphones in a crosswalk with the light. Some young girl texting, ran the light, hit him, sustained a second brain injury. All of the issues came up and then more. And he was in the hospital. And so he came back to treatment as soon as he was out of the hospital and and started improving, but he was in his residency and the pressure of go back to your residency. You gotta come here. You have to work these awful hours. And we never could convince, you know, the medical system to give him time to heal. And yeah, he, he was sent to another eye doctor and the doctor looked at his visual field and said, there's no way you can be a doc. You lost most of your field of vision. And so I remember he brought this back to me in tears. He goes, my career's over. And I go, why? And he said, well, the doctor said my eyes are too bad. And I took out the visual fields I had them from like 15, 20 years ago. And we looked at the old and new. I said, Trevor, is there any difference here? He goes, no said, the only difference is what somebody has said to you and you believed. And so, you know, there's stories like that with him and he's still on his journey. Wow. And, and then it got to 
you know, a friend of mine knew I did a lot of visualization work and her daughter was graduating with a master's in music and it was her final concert that she had to perform in front of the faculty and the students. And she had been sick two weeks with a laryngitis and strep throat. So the last two weeks before this concert, she couldn't even open her mouth to sing or talk. So she's like scared to death. How is she ever going to get on stage? She never had her practice. So she says to me, she calls me from Boston. Can you help her? <laughs> When's the concert? Tomorrow. <clears throat> so I go, I knew that her dad had worked a lot in meditation. And I said, well, let me talk to her dad. <laughs> and so we went through a very simple visualization. I just wanted to rela rest, relax. And in her mind, go to a place where she is sung like never before, where she was beautiful and loved it and embodied it. And I just want her to, in her mind, in her body, go to that place and just sing from there. And that's all. That's all to do. And so the day of, she, you know, sat in the corner and just visualized herself in the place that she sung like an angel before got up on the stage and you know you know if you've sung all your life it's there and she put herself there and just sang beautifully and did great and the the kicker of the story is her professor came over and said what were you doing in the corner before we started I've never seen you do that and she told the professor the story and the professor professor says oh my gosh we never worked on that did we never really went through the process of pre preparation of visualizing all through her college courses of becoming a singer. Yeah. And so, you know, just put in some little stories like that of just the power of the breath and just a quick picture of empowering yourself. You know, my goal is not to change the pictures in your mind. My goal is to make you aware mm -hmm. of your pictures and put you in charge. You know, that's the conversation we always have with our little kids want to be better spellers and they can see the words in their head. And one kid said to me, I can't do this for my spelling test. I go, well, why not? It works so well. You always get your words right when you see them in your head. That's cheating, he says. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just the power of helping you be in charge of your own pictures. Yeah. They can be empowering or disempowering. And who's the one who's going to decide that is you. So that's really what the new book's about. These stories awesome. of patients that have used this type of work yeah. simply to complex stories on empowering themselves. That's awesome, Lynn. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us. And I just, this is a very timely and powerful conversation. And, and it's so gets to the root of what HEAL is about that, you know, we have this physicality and there are things absolutely to work on. And there are tools and surgeries and glasses and all sorts of things and exercises, but that can sometimes be only part of the puzzle and to actually create this more holistic viewpoint for people of how to work on these things. And I love it. I love that story in particular about the young gentleman who was in medical school and his residency. And then to actually see that his visual fields from before and after this accident were so similar and that it was just coming from that statement that got made. We actually did a whole podcast with Dr. Guy Maytal, who's a psychiatrist about the power of a diagnosis and what is a diagnosis and how do we as physicians make sure that we're responsible about what a diagnosis means and what it doesn't. And, mm -hmm. and cause it's very common in our culture that diagnoses become truth reality. That's mm -hmm. what's, that's all that's possible for me. That's who I am versus like, okay, this is this thing that's going on and it's physical and this is what it means is what it doesn't mean. And to go from there, I'm often the first physician that many of my clients come to me that ever have heard anyone say you could actually get better. Most of the time they're given some sort of prognosis of, of limiting the decline. Well, we'll do the best we can to slow down the progression of this disease and I'm the first one that stands inside of like, well, what if we could reverse it? What if we could turn the train around? What if there actually could be things that we could have you no longer need to deal with that you're dealing with now versus that, you know, and it's really powerful to be able to have these conversations and, and for sure it's with us and in our own mind's eye. And I also find that it makes a difference for me to get into dialogue with a coach, 
a healer, a doctor, a loved one, a friend to help pull out what it is that I actually, my heart really wants me to be creating or doing. Cause in some time left to my own devices, it's hard for me to get out of the darkness, but it's then in that community or in that relationship that we can start to make a difference for each other. One of my favorite phrases is you can't see the inside of your own eyeballs. And so you need another person in your life yeah. to help look into those places and, and reflection. And especially I have a lot of naturopathic doctors that come to me and work with me. And they're like, well, I know this stuff. Why can't I just do it myself? I'm like, I can't do it myself either. Like I need the support of those other people. I have my own coaches, my own doctors, my own practitioners that I also work with. And we get to support each other in that way. So thank you for your contribution in supporting us and super excited to have you here. And it just was a wealth of knowledge. Well, thank you, Sarah. And I wrote down that you can't see the inside of your own eyeball. Steal That's it. A, Take it. That is a great one. <laughs> I appreciate it. And, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, this is such a passion of mine to, to do what I can do to assist others to, on their journey. Awesome. And thanks for the time and the wonderful questions. You bet. Until we get to do it again. Very good. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein, for her lifelong commitment to empower others. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Thank you, as always, to our music composer, Roddy Nickport, and our kick-ass editor, Kendra Vicken. And thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. <laughs>